My name is Jacob Nidick, live here, joined by my co-host, Zach Zaffron, for the first rendition of the Sports Zoo live in studio for spring quarter. Men and women's college basketball is over. The playoff push in the NBA is in full effect, and baseball is just now getting started. Zach, we've had two weeks away from the sports zoo, a little bit of spring break, some finals. Give the fans out there a brief recap of what's been going on in your own personal sports world. Well, first of all, nine months. Nine months is how long I've been waiting for this week. The beginning of spring quarter, if you're a Stanford student, Stanford alumni, Stanford affiliate, you know it is the best time of the academic year, so we are feeling good, and and a large part of this good feeling, as you mentioned, is because my personal sports world has been unparalleled. You have the men's championship last night, the women's championship a day before, NBA playoffs coming up, and of course, it's these last days of the regular season in which the real drama unravels. On top of that, spring sports in full effect on the farm, and in the grand scope of things, a lot of great narratives being told coming to fruition all across sports, all of which we will dive into today. So that is where my head is at. I mean, shoot, we've even got golf to talk about. Tiger Woods, the Masters, so much good stuff to cover today. No, absolutely. And you know, the Masters, really one of the most special events in all of golf, and yet somehow goes under the radar towards the average sports fan. One thing that definitely doesn't go under the radar, March Madness, which for both the men and women's just wrapped up in the last few days. You know, Stanford didn't have a contender in the men's bracket. We thought we had a contender on the women's side getting upset here in Maples. That was quite a few weeks ago, but we haven't had a chance to really cover it. What exactly went wrong and was that something that you know warrants further reconsideration of coach Vanderveer or you know the success of this team in the season that they had well we talked about it I think last time on the show um in what I guess we would consider the conclusion of season one as we begin season two today so cheers to that um but you know Tara Vanderveer winning this coach in women's college basketball history She's going out in her own terms, whether that's tomorrow, a week from now, five years from now, 15 years from now. She's seemingly, you know, invincible. Um, She's going out in her own terms. You know, you're not going to fire her. That being said, can you critique her? For the first time in my young Stanford uh, fanship career, I thought she got out coached. now, I thought she got out coached throughout this season for sure, but in, in a moment like this, this is the first time on this stage, I really just felt like Ole Miss came out firing on all cylinders with respect to their game plan, and Stanford had no response. Um, how the team responds next season will be interesting. You know, you lose Haley Jones, your fearless leader of the last four years, but you keep Cameron Brink, you even get... Hannah Jump returning for a fifth year. This may be the make or break a new chapter in Tara Vanderveer's career, a way for her to reestablish and define herself 
as a coach. But, you know, in that game that went wrong, man, Ole Miss just looked like they wanted it more. Yeah, no, absolutely. And what's even crazier, Zach, is where it happened. The Cardinal have been so good at Maples both this season and really in the postseason. They hadn't lost at Maples in 14 games since that loss to South Carolina. When you look at the NCAA, it's been 21 consecutive games. And yet the poison that did them in was something we've talked about all season long, which is a slow offense, only 20 points at the half, a second quarter that they didn't even reach double digits. Cameron Brink gets it done with 20 points, Haley Jones with 16, but then after that, Hannah Jump only had eight. She really just was a non-factor for a majority of the game, and they didn't do enough on the offensive end to even reach half a century mark and you know the Ole Miss props to them comes in and and beats us on our own floor which is still hard for me to fathom I could have seen an upset but not here at Maples Pavilion it feels like that place was reserved for Stanford to to secure victories both this year and in past years as well certainly I you know I thought that Stanford might be on the rocks but not this early I mean the last time we didn't make it past the round of 32, I believe was a full decade ago, as you touched up on. Hannah Jump finishing with eight points. I mean, three of eight shooting, it's not like it's a terrible night, but she just couldn't get the shot attempts up because Ole Miss was clobbering her on the perimeter. And she has been a person brought up time and time again about being the X factor, being the difference maker. When a team can hone in on her and her perimeter threat, you know, it makes the Stanford offense so one dimensional. Um, and as we touched up on as well, Cameron Brink, 20 points in that one after being hospitalized a couple days before with the stomach bug. I don't think she was at 100%. Tara Vanderveer said she wasn't at 100%. She said she didn't quite feel 100%. And when your best player isn't at 100%, obviously it's hard to win. No, absolutely. And you know the rest of the tournament was still so interesting. So many different storylines South Carolina, the undefeated reigning champ getting upset. The story of Caitlin Clark versus everybody and the (laughs) really just magical shooting performance that she put on, but then couldn't top LSU in the championship. They made a run in late in the second half to cut it down, but LSU ends up holding on. What what was your favorite storyline from the rest of the NCAA women's March Madness uh, run this year. It seems like each week the story got better and better. Caitlin Clark, such an exciting, fun player to watch over the last years, and it seems like she reached the pinnacle of that excitement in this tournament. You know, I wanted to say her beating Aaliyah Boston and South Carolina in the Final Four, but it just got better in the National Championship her versus Angel Reese, the drama that went down, the backlash that LSU received in their celebration. And probably the best part of this is it's making a lot of noise. So many people, media outlets, Twitter people, you know, celebrities commenting on, disputing, discussing the aftermath of the national championship and so much publicity, so many eyes on the women's national championship is just a great thing for women's college basketball this tournament 
serving as the latest of reminders of how women's basketball is so, so amazing. And I think it just needs to get in front of more people's eyes this year, seemingly getting it done is, correct me if I'm wrong, I remember seeing a stat, it was saying it was ESPN Plus's most viewed college event, men's or women's, ever. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think it was close to 10 million viewers on there, which was unprecedented numbers. And yeah, also this final game has really created a lot of discussion around how media represents athletes. And, you know, as two people who have been somewhat involved in the media presence of sports here on Stanford's campus, definitely an interesting conversation that is happening nationally. But it almost seems like people aren't even listening to what the athletes themselves are saying. You look at Caitlin Clark, she's telling the media, there's no reason to criticize LSU. One, I didn't see it, but also that's part of the game. Trash talk, living up your emotions is part of the game. And yet people on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook are up in arms about what's going on and how LSU treated Iowa. And yet the star player of Iowa is saying, whoa, what she did was okay. It definitely just a lot of interesting uh reasons and discussion about some of the broader issues in sports media and representation. Yeah, it seems like this is why the athletes say the media tries to create their own narratives. Now, that being said, it's it's tough to figure out when media toes the line between entertainment and news, right? This is kind of the huge debacle. Um, I, I'd be curious, Jacob, what are your thoughts on all press is good press, you know, or all publicity is good publicity? Yeah, you know, I think I definitely... As someone who is a fan of teams now enjoys when they're not in the spotlight. I feel like a lot of times it's it's for the wrong reason. It's a scandal or some sort of, um, you know, just thinking of college basketball, you have stuff happening with Alabama. You have the Texas basketball head coach involved in another scandal. It seems like whenever there's national media, it's often for the wrong reasons. But whenever you're trying to grow the game, and I think especially when it comes to women's basketball, which has such a great product, but such small fan base compared to March Madness, creating rivalries like this, you know, there is definitely some potential Mm -hmm. or some benefits, I should say. I think creating, you know, honest representation of the players and really trying to portray them in the best light is important, but... Right now, there are storylines in women's college basketball that the entire nation should be following, that any fan of basketball, of sports, or really of just drama should be following. I mean, Caitlin Clark's performance is Steph Curry-esque. The performance that LSU as a team put on is worthy of some of Michael Jordan and the Bulls' worth levels. The South Carolina team is rivaling that of some of the... 1900 Celtics dynasties so in that case I think more media is better because these athletes deserve to be given the respect that you know their performance warrants and so I think getting some of that media attention is kind of where where they can get that definitely and and like you said talking about growing the game it's so much value in those narratives that's what draws those eyes specifically Caitlin Clark man Oh my goodness. You choose any game in the tournament, and there's so much to talk about. 41-point triple-double in the Elite Eight. A 
They're a 41-point performance again in the Final Four and a 30-point performance in the National Championship, although she fell short. So, so exciting. One of those people who changes the games. You know, Steph Curry often mentioned for revolutionizing the game of basketball. Caitlin Clark, perhaps a product of the Curry basketball era, but maybe we are soon to enter a Caitlin Clark era. That's not too far-fetched to say. No, absolutely. There was a a sign I saw at, I think, the Final Four that said it had Jordan crossed out, Curry crossed (laughs) out, and it said Clark. And so just love that for the game. And the thing is, she'll be back next year, too. UConn will also have their star back pending ACL recovery. Zach, looking ahead to next year, what does Caitlin Clark have to do to either match or exceed this performance as really, you know, the best pure scorer this season? Like, she's proven she can score. She's proven she can shoot. She's proven to an extent that she can win. You know, Iowa's not reached these heights of success before Caitlin Clark, but it's time for her to get a ring. That is the missing piece of the puzzle. She won the Wooden Award averaged 26, 27, 28 points over the last three years. You add a national championship to that resume, and I don't see why we're not talking about Caitlin Clark being one of the greatest women's college basketball players of all time. Absolutely. And, you know, one thing that I absolutely love about her story is she's from West Des Moines, Iowa, and she is playing for the Hawkeyes, hometown hero, doing it for the college that I'm sure she grew up rooting for. I think that just makes it even more special as um, given what she's done for for that university. Definitely. You know, if you're in the Bay Area and a high school athlete uh, and you're a fan of Cal, though, you should definitely come to Stanford. So be be care, beware of that one. <laughs> yeah. But uh, no, Caitlin Clark and, and Angel Reese, I believe, too, also coming back for LSU. You know, she was seen pointing at her ring finger at the end of the game. Being able to see these two go back and forth. I mean, I'm getting flashbacks to, like you said, you know, Larry, Magic, um, LeBron, Curry, Kobe, and the Celtics. The list could go on. I think that this is the beginning of something new for women's college basketball. Yeah, no, and I love Reese's, you know, authenticity. She, throughout the entire season, has been criticized, has, you know, been seen by so many fans as, this certain type of person and basketball player, and she's continued to be herself. And I think there's so much honor that that really comes with that, considering how much overall hate she's gotten from everyone. But that detracts from her performance on the hardwood. 34 triple-doubles this year. Oh, my gosh. Absolutely ridiculous. She is someone that in every single game showed up put in effort on the offensive boards, the defensive boards, scored, and made the team around her better. So we can talk about the taunting, the White House visit, all that, but let's not get detracted from what she's doing on the court, which is phenomenal in itself. That's monstrous, man. That many triple doubles, 15.5 rebounds per game, over 50% from the field. Again, one of those players who could be going down in the history books when you talk about women's hoops. And and, and thinking back to the bracket as a whole, right? I know you're a Longhorns fan. What I'd, I'd be, you know, the fans want to know, Jacob, Texas Longhorns, early exit 
in the round of 32 as well. That one less pronounced of an upset as Stanford, um, but a four versus five matchup. They lose to number five Louisville with Haley Van Lith leading Louisville to that 22 point victory. Rory Harmon and the Longhorns looked so good when I watched them last year against Stanford. What was the expectation versus the reality here for the Longhorns as a as a Texas fan? Yeah, you know, coming in as a four seed, you want to make sure that you get past those early round matchups and you get to a place where really anything can happen. Unfortunately, they just did not get past Louisville. And I mean, Louisville, a talented team in and of itself, but definitely a letdown for the Longhorn faithful Kind of shows you why March is so crazy and so chaotic because this Texas team didn't just lose to Louisville. They got absolutely dominated on both ends of the floor. A really sad ending to overall a really successful season. And I mean, you look at the bracket and that round of 32, Stanford loses the one seed. Texas loses the four seed. The three seed also lost by double digits to none other than Pac-12 school Colorado. The round of 32 is one that, you know, can be really dangerous. And Texas, Stanford, and others, unfortunately, were on the, the back end of that. Yeah, and Indiana, the another one seed upset by Miami. I think a huge reason that women's basketball this year was so, so popular and fun was... The parody, which has not been a given in women's hoops in recent years. You know, I think it was the first time in four or five years that not three or more one seeds have made it to the final four. And so many early exits this year. It's the uncertainty that makes March so mad, so fun, so exciting. And we finally got that this year. Absolutely. And, you know, getting to know some of the different personalities on these teams has been so entertaining just as a fan. I think NIL has really allowed some of these athletes to thrive off the court with their brand deals and their social media. And it's been fun, you know, just being a fan of the game and getting to know some of these players on a little bit closer level. I know Miami was a team that a lot of people were rooting for given the uh, the two twins that go there and their TikTok celebrity status. So, there definitely a lot of room for growth in the women's game, and I think this tournament was really a big step from kind of the more niche basketball fan to the broader basketball fan here in the United States. Definitely, definitely. And looking ahead to next year, it's never too early to give out your predictions for who next year's national championship is. If you look here at the farm, Stanford loses Haley Jones, retains Cameron Brink, gets Hannah Jump for an extra year. Is Stanford going to be in the conversation again next year? Make it to the Final Four? Make it to the National Championship? What are your way too early predictions? I think it could be somewhat of a rough year on the farm compared to our normal standards. Meaning, will we compete for a Pac-12 championship? Absolutely. Will we compete to make it deep into the tournament? Absolutely. But is it expected that either of those happen? I don't think that is the case. I think, you know, finishing in the top three in the Pac-12 would be a successful season, in my opinion. Maybe anything from the Sweet 16 to the Elite Eight. But I think this team is really 
going to have to find some people to step up, um, especially on the offensive end. And I think Hannah Jump is a person that's really poised to make that jump if she's up to the challenge, which I'm sure she will be, but it's going to take more than just her and Cameron Brink next year. So as sad as it is, I think I'm a little bit more pessimistic next year. Uh, do you share that sentiment, or what are you what are you thinking over there? Maybe, maybe not a boiling hot take. I don't know what you would consider it, but my prediction is uh, this Stanford team will not only win a Pac-12 title, they not only will go further than the Stanford team did this year, but I think we're going to see them in the April weekend playing in the Final Four, competing for a national championship, contingent on whether or not, like you said, the guard play continues to develop. I just think Cameron Brink will be a force to be reckoned with down below. And also, honestly, in the perimeter, her game has evolved so much. I want to see Kiki Iriafin show that aggressiveness that she did early on in the year. You know, Talana Lapolo, India Navarre, and Hannah Jump can show a little more versatility and capability on the outside. I see no reason why this team doesn't go incredibly far. No, absolutely. And you throw someone of these newer players in there. I think Lauren Betts is also another person that could really step into a sizable role next year. Imagine being her and Cameron Brink together on the floor. We need to come up with a nickname for them ASAP because (laughs) they would absolutely own the paint every game. But there's definitely a lot of reason to be excited about this team I'm sure they're still recovering from the loss and kind of in a bit of a down period now, but they'll be getting after it soon, I'm, I'm, I'm sure. Yeah, and, and recognizing, sure, our bias is, is being so proximate to the team. We're Stanford students. Maybe we're a little bit, you know, favoriting them. You step outside these bounds of this Stanford campus who else are you looking at for next year? Like we talked about, you know, Iowa gets back Caitlin Clark, LSU gets back Angel Reese. Are we going to see South Carolina? They lose Aaliyah Boston, you know, the Cavender twins over in Miami, someone else to look out for. You know, AZ Fudd, uh, Paige Becker is back on UConn. As that, that's a team that you're looking at, isn't it? Yeah, I think UConn is really the team that I think has a lot to to prove next year. They came in first in the Big East, got somewhat upset by Ohio State in the Sweet 16. That was a double-digit loss, and they're bringing back someone that many people would have considered the best player in women's college basketball. Who knows whether she'll be the same, considering she just, I believe it was an ACL injury, but UConn is a team that they know how to win. They have such a refined program up there and I think they're just a player that they have players but namely Paige Bukers will just be a player that if healthy and if even at 80% can make a difference and and really push them to going from Sweet 16 to Final Four and who knows even after that definitely while I do have high hopes for Stanford I think this is the year Gino and UConn returns to normalcy, continues on the wave of the men's success, and Paige Becker's returns to pre-injury form. Because, I mean, shoot, her freshman year, she won um, the National Women's College Player of the Year Award, the first freshman, too, but having nagging knee injuries in her sophomore year and then that ACL tear her junior year, I think she'll come out with a vengeance, and if she can get back to form, 
Ooh, it's going to be scary. Yeah, and that's perfect segue into the men's UConn team who, you know, most recently just won a national championship and really did so quite handily. That game, you know, it was close late in the second half at one point, but UConn quickly put it away, kind of working backwards from the national championship to some of those earlier rounds and upsets. What were your thoughts on the overall Final Four? You have San Diego State and FAU. You have Miami and UConn. Lowest seed is a four all the way up with two fives and a nine. What did you think about the Final Four in the National Championship? You know, on the bright side, we talked about parity with the women. Parity with the men was off the charts. Like you said, highest seed, a four seed. You got a two fives and a nine in there. It was so fun to see these teams that I had zero uh, clue would be there. That being said, this national championship, to me, was on par with the 2018 Super Bowl between, or rather, not the 2018 Super Bowl. Was it, it was the Rams and Patriots Super Bowl that was so, so terribly boring. That That is exactly what came <laughs> to mind watching this game last year. I, you know, I was not impressed. San Diego State did cut it down to five late in the second half, but other than that, unimpressed unfortunately yeah no absolutely i think the real matchup that or game that was the best matchup had to be the sdsu fau obviously the buzzer beater crazy ending but that game was back and forth in the final minutes all throughout and really was with two programs that i think the whole country was really rooting behind how can you not root for a nine seed and and even a five seed that's San Diego State, who hasn't been really deep this deep since Kawhi was there. So, other than those matchups, so what was your favorite storyline from this tournament, Zach? You know, land of the bra- land of the nerds here on Stanford campus. Got to give a tip of the hat to the Brainiacs of Princeton, making it all the way to the elite, or rather, the Sweet Sixteen, and they fought against Creighton, really had it into the end. When you're a 15 seed, I mean, when you win, America wins, right? I love to see that. Um, but overall, so many great storylines. I'm the biggest Gonzaga hater out there. I was so happy to see <laughs> UConn absolutely <laughs> run through them. Um, what, what about your favorite storylines? Yeah, definitely the Princeton storyline had to be one that I really enjoyed. I also think that there was it was really exciting to see some of the one seeds fall the way that they did. Mm-hmm. Alabama was a team that I was rooting for initially, but whenever it came to them playing against San Diego State, really enjoyed seeing that. Um, I think another storyline that was somewhat interesting was Arkansas. They upset the number one seed, Kansas. They also dominated um, in their first round matchup against Illinois. Obviously lose pretty handily to the eventual national champion, but Arkansas, a team that came in, really exceeded a lot of people's expectations and put on one of the best upset performances against number one ranked Kansas. How crazy is it that all one seeds were gone after the Sweet 16? I I can't remember the last time that happened. Of those four one seeds, you have Alabama, Purdue, Kansas, and Houston. Who was the biggest disappointment? to you. I mean, I think it has to go to Purdue. Farley Dickinson, 
Shout out to the Knights. I didn't even know that was a school that existed <laughs> before the game. That, I mean, I just, I don't know how anyone other than a Purdue fan can't be so happy for that team, for that coach, the entire school. That is the reason why we play these games, why we include these one seeds, because so few of people predicted them to win. I mean, how could you? Purdue would look dominant. This was a school that even now, I'm not really sure if they're based in Canada or New Jersey. <laughs> and yet they get it done and stun Purdue. So that definitely has to be, uh, to me, the biggest upset of the tournament. And Purdue has to be the biggest letdown thus far. Absolutely. I mean, Zach Eady winning National Player of the Year. Congratulations to him. But I was surprised how highly touted the Boilmakers were for a one seed, they had losses to Rutgers of all schools, a pair of losses to Indiana as well, as well as Northwestern and Maryland. Remind me a time when these schools were relevant and out. It's just, I, I don't know what the voters were thinking, but hey, FDU reaping the uh, benefits of that placement there. And then, you know, the FDU FAU game was. Both heartbreaking and wonderful to watch. I found myself so sad after you lost, and then I remembered, oh my gosh, it's a nine seed moving on. I'm still happy about that one. Yeah, no, absolutely. You essentially expressed my exact sentiment and the sentiment of, I'm sure, so many people around the country. Definitely will be quite sad that March is over, but what a wonderful tournament it was. How did your bracket do this year, Zach? I know personally... (laughs) (laughs) I was riding on the Longhorns to win it all. They got beat by Miami in the Sweet 16. So I was a middle-of-the-pack bracket. How did you do over there? Um, You know, if if we talk about the women's, not bad. We're in the the mid to high 90s percentage. Like, I'm very happy with that. Um, Don't know if I want to get started with the men's. I think this is the worst I have ever done. I mean, for starters... um, I had Kansas winning it all, so it it went awry there when Arkansas took over. Um, A lot of misses in my bracket. I will say I'm happy I had the Purdue. I had Purdue as a second-round exit, Um, so I'll I'll happily take that one, but a performance not to be too happy with. How about you, Jacob? Yeah, similarly, thought I threw in a good number of upsets, and I think I had roughly the right number of upsets but just all the wrong teams it seems like (laughs) all the 10s I predicted to win lost all the 12s I predicted to lose won so another rough year back to the drawing board but luckily ESPN makes me feel better whenever they release the stats like only 13 brackets predicted this (laughs) team this far and I was like okay so I'm one of the 19 million other people that didn't do it so you know it was fun I never put too much hope in that, but hopefully next year will will be a little bit better performance. Next year, second perfect bracket ever will be coming from <laughs> yeah. this studio at yeah. KZSU. Um, Texas, the Longhorns. I was giving you some some flack, you know, before the tournament started, uh, but they showed out. If I do say so myself, how did you enjoy watching the Longhorns make it out that far? Yeah, I mean that was really. Everything that's happened this season with the previous head coach, with the interim head coach coming in and being someone that the players loved, 
really just wanted this one for the guys on the team. You know, you want them to be rewarded for the perseverance they've had this season, having to put up with so much off-the-court stuff that is completely out of their control. And, you know, what a performance they had. This is the deepest they've gone in quite a few years. Came from some unlikely contributors. Unfortunately, I think maybe the end result could have happened a little bit differently had, you know, some injuries and a few shots gone in here and there. But nonetheless... A great season. It, it does sting, though. Whenever you're up by double digits in the second half and then you blow that lead, it leaves a, a bitter taste in the mouth, though, for sure. Definitely. But, hey, at least you threw a five seed in the final four, which made for a very, very entertaining matchup. Thinking to our team over here on the farm, seven years without a NCAA tournament appearance. Does that change next year? Absolutely. Sweet 16 is where I have this wow. team going. I was, <laughs> I, that's funny that you ask. I already have been thinking this team, Sweet 16 is where we are going. Book the tickets now, folks. The hotels, the flights, the <laughs> rental car. We're going. This is a team that is poised for a breakout run. We're losing Issa Silva who I will spend zero seconds crying about. This is a team that is getting better with his departure, as sad as it is. And this is a team that is adding two pieces that I am completely bought in. We're going far this year. Wherever you can buy the stock on Stanford, buy it all. I'm doubling down with the Cardinal and Coach Haas for next season. When you're uh, requesting your refunds, let me know. <laughs> but uh, No, I, I think this is the year. This is... The year. It's why Jared Hass is back. And I have very, very good feelings about it. I'm high on them as well. Sweet 16, you know, I feel like I'm maybe a little bit pessimistic this last year, <laughs> but um, when I was an optimistic fan, you know, I felt like there weren't many more optimists out there. But you seem to be uh, proving that wrong. Um, I'm just curious, you know, Michael O'Connell going to be the senior guard, but who's behind him? You lose Issa Silva, Kanan Carlisle, the five-star coming in, but he's more of a combo guard in my eyes. We didn't see much of Benny Geeler this year. Is it going to be Geeler playing the one after MOC, or who's who's going to be the one man in the court? You know, I think I have a lot of faith in Michael O'Connell. I think his late-season performance, especially the one against Arizona, whenever he was really able to be a facilitator. And I think what is going to be unique about next year is that this whole season, other than Spencer Jones, there's been pressure on these guys to be able to score. I mean, I don't really think we have that many pure scorers. Harrison isn't a true scorer. Michael O'Connell, Brandon Angel, those guys are great contributors, but their role is not scoring. Kanan and Andres will come in and lessen that burden. So Michael can just focus on passing and defense. Brandon Angel can be a great, you know, player that's guarding one through five. We can develop some more shooters. So I think bringing in some new people will kind of take the burden off of Michael where he has to score, shoot, pass, and lead, and he can just kind of focus on distributing. So I think that that load is going to change, and that's why I'm really confident in, in our front court there. 100%. In terms of the Pac-12 landscape, UCLA 
likely returning Jalen Clark, the Naismith Defensive Player of the Year. They lose Jaime Hackes, who I think has been there for 80 years now. Uh, same with Tiger Campbell retiring after his seventh senior season. How does the Stanford Cardinal stack up against the rest of the Pac-12? Yeah, you know, we'll, I think we're still waiting on a few players' decisions, whether Harrison comes back. I think Spencer Jones is even someone that could potentially find a way to return with some of the COVID years and red shirts and all that. But nonetheless, this will be a conference that's really highly touted once again. I'm looking at Oregon to potentially make a better push for the conference next year. I think that'll be a team that has, you know, a much stronger year. But when it comes to those other teams, I think it's more important about what we do on our floor. As we've seen later in the season, when we're playing at our best, we can compete with whoever it is. So I think, you know, UCLA, Arizona definitely will be up at the top, but I think Oregon's a team that will return to some of its previous glory that it kind of missed out on this year. Very interesting. In terms of the NCAA tournament, Pac-12 representation, we know Stanford is going to be a Sweet 16 team, allegedly. Who else are we going to see out there? You know, I that is a great question. I would love for some of these teams that have been kind of average lately to really step up as long as it's not at the expense of the Cardinal but I'm looking at some of those mountain schools Utah and Colorado Colorado for example a team that always seems to have a lot of talent this year they had the Silva who was a pure scorer could get it done yet went 8 and 12 in conference 18 and 17 overall they're a team that I think could potentially improve I'm not saying they're going to improve to make the tournament, but looking at going from 500 to maybe, you know, winning two thirds of their games or being just a little bit more competitive. And then other than that, I think, you know, it is really a toss up with depending on the transfer portal and who's coming in and out. So I think once we have a little bit more info about the different rosters and what those compositions look like, we'll have a much better ability to predict but I think Colorado and even Utah teams that could make um, some somewhat of a, a jump next year definitely so UConn your 2023 national champions we're going to see them back next year you know I'm going to throw that over to you <laughs> who do you think could even challenge them let's say UConn is back who are you thinking could even challenge that status besides the Huskies well my mind is just boggled by how dominant they were as a four seed. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. They won every game by 13-plus points. I don't know if any other team in the history of college basketball has ever done that. Bobby Hurley, I saw videos of him after they defeated Miami in the Final Four. Not a slightest of smiles on his face. It was all business in that UConn locker room, and I don't know why they weren't highly, you know, more highly regarded entering the tournament read a Bleacher Report article today where a writer said that UConn is the most dominant team college basketball has seen in the last 25 years. Now, I think that is bogus. <laughs> I, I don't think there's any truth to that. They did show absolute domination this tournament, but I just 
don't see it being repeated next year when you take into account the amount of parity that went into this year. You know, if we see a lot of nine seeds out there, sure, maybe UConn's back out there, but college basketball is welcoming so many new faces next year, whether it's the guys coming from overtime elite, whether it's the guys, you know, those McDonald's All-Americans, LeBron James's own kids for crying out loud, so many great players to be faced up against. I think that we're going to see an entirely different slate of teams next year, one that will not include UConn. Interesting. And, you know, that discussion that's being happening amongst college basketball fans about where this team ranks in the all-time conversation, to me, is a little bit interesting when you look at their path to the national championship. They beat a five-seed in the national championship and the final four. Before that, a three-seed, eight-seed, five-seed, and 13-seed. Definitely one of the easier paths to the national championship. Does that discredit their ring this year or their place in the all-time greats to you, Zach? Look, they could have played six one-seeds, even though that's literally impossible, and people would still be discrediting this win. People will hate on a victory no matter what, probably myself included, as I have been doing. Um, No, national championships, national championship. They're going to get that ring. They're going to be forever ingrained in history, and they absolutely deserve to be celebrated. Of course, yes, maybe they played some easier teams than years past. Of course, yes, maybe their 13-plus point differential every game was a product of not playing those blue blood programs, but I just think that the dominant fashion in which they won each and every matchup, they they left no doubt in my mind that they were deserving of this title. Absolutely. And we're getting ready to crown a title in the other type of basketball, the pro divisions. Right now, the NBA playoff push in full effect, less than a handful of games remaining. Let's start with the Western Conference. And for those of you that don't know, the NBA recently shifting to a mini play-in tournament where the 7, 8, 9, and 10 seeds at the end of the regular season will play. 7 and 8 play. The winner secures their spot. The loser of that will then play the winner of the 9 and 10 seed for the final spot. So if you're the 7 or the 8 seed, you only have to win one game to secure your spot. Meanwhile, the 9 or the 10 seed has to win two games. And right now, there are so many teams that are looking at not just making the playoffs, but going from a play-in game to potentially even like a four seed, a five seed, depending on what happens here. Zach, who are you looking at from, you know, the Suns down at being really dangerous if they can get into the playoffs? I think it's got to be the Lakers, 40 and 38 in the seventh seed with four games to go. There was a point in this season prior to the trade deadline which the Lakers looked so, so terribly lost. And this turnaround, this momentum, this surge is something I would be very scared about if I'm facing the Lakers. They seem to finally be finding the cohesion and rhythm that they've lost since winning the, not to say Mickey championship but that championship in the bubble i'm scared i'm even terrified of the lakers which 
as someone who was clowning them earlier in the season, I, I can't believe that I'm terrified of them, but I absolutely am. That's who I have my eyes on. No, absolutely. And it, you know, there's a lot of talk about sports being scripted these days. <laughs> it somehow feels like the Lakers or, you know, whenever it was the Cavaliers or the Heat or whoever LeBron's team finds a way to, you know, pawn someone off, in this case, Patrick Beverly at the trade deadline into a team that now has many fans and opposing players worried at the end here. This is a team that has really come out of nowhere, but they've won seven of the last 10. They're on a three-game win streak, and they're poised to make a run, not just from the seventh seed into the playoffs, but maybe slip in at the sixth seed or the five seed, and who knows what happens then. What team, you know, looking at 8, 9, 10, 11, you've got the Pelicans, Timberwolves, Thunder, and Mavericks all within about two or three games of each other. Which of those teams do you want to figure out in these last five or so games a way to win and get in and try to make something special happen? I, I think the Pelicans are, are certainly a team that I find very exciting, fun to watch, and playing below their capabilities right now. So if they can get that plan, get past that, make it into you know a couple games with a higher seed, if Zion is out there joining the likes of C.J. McCollum, the rest of that young core, even if they don't win a lot in these playoffs, just getting that core, that young group, some playoff experience would be invaluable because the talent there is is unreal, and it's just whether or not those guys can stay on the court. Absolutely. Two established stars on the Mavericks, Kyrie and Luka, haven't seemed to figure it out yet on the court together. Another tough ending uh, just a few days ago, lost a nail-biter to the Hawks where they ended up fouling Trey Young, couldn't figure out a way to win that game. What's going on in Dallas? Two ball-dominant players, and it's a shame because after that trade, I was really excited for Dallas and its fans. As exciting as Luka is, I'm not the biggest fan of his. As terrible of an individual Kyrie is, he is an exciting player to watch. Uh, But obviously, play style is so, so important when you're crafting a team. And this is just a latest of reminders that Sometimes getting the best players together and throwing them out on the court does not grant success. You know, I think of like the 2012, 2010 Lakers when they got all those all-stars and it just didn't pan out. You need guys that are cohesive. You need guys to complement Luka and Kyrie taking the ball away from him isn't necessarily going to help, especially when Luka, not necessarily the kind of guy to be cutting when his man isn't looking, not necessarily the kind of guy to be so active coming off of down screens and ball screens. Um, and you know the defensive capability of those two as well, something that probably isn't where it needs to be for them to be contending. Absolutely. Kind of moving up the Western Conference, definitely some teams peaking at the right time. Grizzlies winning eight of their last 10, and the Suns on a five-game win streak. They've been red hot since KD has been healthy. And, you know, you watch that team with Devin Booker, KD, DeAndre Ayton, Chris Paul. That is a dangerous-looking team. Who are you most worried about actually winning the Western Conference right now? I I guess 
it's terrible because I honestly do, do not, not like, say the Warriors. <laughs> I, 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 as a Warriors fan, it's a, it's a shame that I don't want any of the top five current seeds to win except for maybe the Kings, which, let's be honest, I don't see them making it very far. Light the beam, but not past the second round. <laughs> um, you know, the Nuggets, I, I think that they're an exciting team. I do think that they will succeed. I just don't love Jokic. I don't know if he's built for playoff basketball. The Grizzlies just self-handed, you know, single-handedly making themselves the villains of the NBA. And so for that reason, I'm not rooting for them. Sacramento Kings, throw them in the finals, give them redemption for the 2000 or 2004, whatever it was, when the NBA rigged them against the Lakers. They need their revenge. Phoenix, I'd love to see KD succeed. Um, Clippers, I, I do not like Paul George. I do not like Kawhi Leonard. It sounds like we have a hater on our hands, folks. <laughs> I am the biggest hater because the Golden State Warriors sitting in the sixth seed need to hold on to that position. And they're in prime time right now. If they get that sixth seed, they're playing against the Kings in the first round. That's basically a home game, you know, all seven. It, it better be considering the Warriors' uh, away game performance this season. I mean, the Warriors 32-8 and eight at home. I think teams should be scared if they do run into the Warriors and then they somehow figure out their road woes. That being said, like you said, those road woes are something to be worried about. Absolutely. So as a Warriors fan, sitting at the sixth seed, facing off against the Kings... Is that the optimal matchup for for the road to repeat? I think so. I just think this is an unproven Kings team. They've been so successful all season long. De'Aaron Fox establishing himself as one of the most clutch players in the NBA. But matchup-wise, one of those teams, I just think we have their number. Um, and quite frankly, I would rather be a six seed playing the Kings than a seven seed or you know a play-in person playing the Grizzlies with the two seed. So optimal matchup in my eyes for sure. Yeah, and they have some Warriors having three games coming up that will have huge playoff implications. They play against the Thunder today against the Kings in Sacramento on Friday and then the Trailblazers in Portland on Sunday. But we haven't touched on the Trailblazers. They're Definitely on the outside looking in currently at five games back, but crazier things have happened. And then obviously Kings Warriors going to have so much riding on it given playoff positioning, but also really just getting a feel for each other before that. How do you balance, you know, playing these teams in the regular season, especially this late Warriors just beat the Nuggets in a close one, but the NBA hardly plays defense by most people's standards. Is that a win that Warriors fans should be really proud of or can just be chalked up to another game in an 82-game season? Hey, man, I think every win past April 1st is something to certainly be proud of because you know I'm a big believer in recency uh, being an indicator of playoff success and I think this is the transitory period in which people have to start locking in have to start playing hard have to start showing that it's playoff time because it doesn't happen immediately this is the period in which they're getting themselves ready and they need to you know start shaping up absolutely jumping east now a lot more is settled in terms of which teams will be making the playoffs not necessarily completely set on 
where they're at. We know for sure that the Bucks will win their division. We know that the Celtics, Sixers, Cavs, and Knicks have all clinched their playoff position and that the Raptors have clinched being a play-in team. But you still have the 6, 7, 8, and 10 all up for debate. When you're looking at the bottom of the Eastern, not the bottom, but rather that kind of bottom of the playoff push, you have the Bulls there, the Wizards definitely far out, four games back. But are you worried about any of those teams, either as a fan of the Warriors or just as, you know, a Celtics, Bucks, Sixers fan at the top of the Eastern Conference? Honestly, no. You know, NBA is not the same as March Madness. There isn't that element of parity. If your team isn't the Bucks, the Celtics, or the 76ers, I'm sorry, but see ya. Goodbye. You're not winning the NBA championship this year. Might win a couple rounds. Add to the narrative. Build yourself up, build yourself up for next year. But I think the only three real contenders in the East are the Bucks, Celtics, and Sixers. That being said, the parity within those three maybe is where the excitement can come from because I don't know about you. I don't know who I see really coming out on top in the East. Yeah, I mean, I would push back. I think the Knicks are actually a really unique team, and I know they're the Knicks folks, but (laughs) with this new-look roster of Jalen Brunson and Julius Randle, throwing R.J. Barrett and some of those other guys... I really like what they're doing, and I think they're playing together really well. And I also, I can't overlook the Cavs with Donovan Mitchell. I feel like just him as a scorer and everything he can do is a threat. Now, do I think they pose a huge threat to the Celtics or the Bucks? No, but could they take either of those teams to, you know, six games, seven games? Maybe. Who knows? To me, it's definitely Celtics, uh, Bucks. Though I, I just the Seventy Sixers don't think that that franchise <laughs> is one that knows how to actually piece together oh. wins. Joel Embiid, I just think is a funny guy and a great basketball player in the regular season. Wow! And James Harden, depending on what city that they go to, who knows whether he'll be able to show up <laughs> or not. I think it's Celtics-Bucks in the Eastern Conference Finals, and I think that will be a heavyweight battle between both of those teams gearing up for a finals game with whoever comes out of the Western Conference that will be also heavily battle-tested. So I really think, depending on which team can stay healthy and you know maybe get an early-round sweep, that could go a long way considering how physical these late-round matchups are looking at um, potentially being. Certainly. So, Bucks, Celtics, the likely candidates coming out of the East. You've got Giannis Antetokounmpo, and you've got Jason Tatum. Those two leading the charge, both MVP candidates. Thinking about the MVP race a little bit, Nikola Jokic for the Nuggets leading them to the number one seed. Also got Joel Embiid in the conversation as the regular season comes to a close, who would you like to see be crowned the most valuable player? Yeah, you know, the thing is, Joel Embiid and Nikola Jokic are probably two of my least favorite players in the <laughs> NBA. 
other than Draymond Green. Um, and so, you know, do they both deserve it? Probably. Who would I give it to? I would probably give it to Giannis. I think he's someone that, again, what he's doing on the court, his role on his team, that Bucks team somehow finds a way to win and win frequently. I think Jason Tatum, as much as I love him and think he's a great player, is just not quite done enough to to warrant an MVP this season. One of the top five players in the East for sure, but not the best player or not the most valuable player all across. So I think I'd have to go with probably Giannis as as my MVP right now. I, I would love to see Giannis win. And, you know, a matter of fact, I, I would say he is my MVP. I just sadly don't see him winning it. It's a shame the small market of Milwaukee hurting him in that regard. But on the other end, Nikola Jokic, I just think voter fatigue will get in the way. I think I am someone who is tired of seeing a man who probably runs a seven-second, 40-yard dash dominate the NBA. Um, you know, Embiid is someone I'm definitely looking at. I think that he has done a great job carrying the load for the Sixers in a, in a tough uh top of the Eastern Conference. Um, Jokic, the likely guy, but like I said, like you were saying, I would love to see Giannis come away on top. No, absolutely. And another player that hasn't been getting a lot of love, but Stanford fans should be, Brooke Lopez, the seven-footer coming out of here, has been absolutely superb this year. He's averaging 30 minutes a game, putting up 15 points to go along with just over two blocks and around seven boards. He's been a key member of the Bucks this year and will definitely play a pivotal role if they're looking to make a title run. Love to see your Stanford representation. We have just over a minute now. We're going to do a quick jump around the farm right now, starting with the Diamonds. Stanford traveling to Oklahoma this past weekend, playing a four-game series. They weren't able to get a clean sweep, but put on a lot of very good baseball. That team is still ranked in the top 10 in essentially every poll right now. So get out to Sunken Diamond if you haven't been thus far this year. Got to tip the hat to men's gymnastics, MPSF champions, nine named to the all MPSF squad, a dynasty program continuing to get things done. Next up, we have the women's water polo team defending national champion Currently 16-0 on the year. They're playing in Southern California against number two ranked USC. Huge matchup there. And why don't you close us off with one more team, Zach? Can't go without mentioning Rose Zhang. Winning the Augusta National Women's Amateur on Saturday. Number one ranked amateur in the world for a reason. Continuing to get it done. Absolutely. Next up, we have viewer discretion advised with Chris and Matt. But before that, we're going to take a quick music break. My name has been Jacob Nidig, live here on the Sports Zoo with my co-host, Zach Zaffron, for the first episode of Season 2, Spring Quarter. As always, wear red, stay late, go card.